Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and we respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Christina Bellantoni, most of you know, USC professor of professional practice, director of the Annenberg Media Center, former assistant editor of the Los Angeles Times, editor-in-chief at Roll Call. Uh, She's been around a long time, even though she doesn't look it. Uh, Bill Carrick uh, is coming, we think. I'll introduce him when he does come. Jeff Greenfield is a very old friend of mine, award-winning television journalist and author who serves as a senior political correspondent for CBS News. He also was a senior analyst for CNN, lead analyst for its coverage of primaries, presidential debates, Supreme Court nominations, and more. He's one of our Spring 2020 fellows at the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. David Hill, director of Hill Research Consultants, a leading pollster and research-based strategist. He's worked for Republican candidates, including Vice President Dan Quayle, former Florida Governors Jeb Bush and Bob Martinez. He's another one of our Spring Fellows. Uh, Dr. Ernie Wilson, uh, Professor of Communication, Political Science, and former Dean of the Annenberg School, the founder and director of the USC Center for Third Space Thinking, and devoted to soft skills in the digital age. He's also served as a consultant to international agencies like the World Bank and as a consultant to the White House National Security Council. I'm going to ask everybody how they're reacting to these results. First, because we're not probably going to be here well into California, which won't close until 8 o'clock. I want to express one cautionary note. The early, and Jim Brulte, the Republican former chairman out here, told me this today. The early returns may not reflect very much about California because they will be from the mail ballots that were mailed in well in advance of the primary. And what we're seeing tonight is about half of people appear to have made up their minds in the last several days. California will take a couple of weeks to sort out before we know who won what delegates. But I'm going to start with Christina. What's your reaction so far? For former Vice President Joe Biden, the map benefits him, right? The first poll closings that we've seen are states that favored him. And now we know there are people who are still waiting in line to vote here in California who are seeing his momentum. That is a good thing. People like to vote for winners. They um, sometimes decide not to vote for someone because it doesn't look like that person is performing well. This is real data people can go on as they're making their final decisions. Bob's exactly right. We know that a lot of people um, made those decisions, mailed ballots in. In fact, a lot of people mailed ballots for candidates who then dropped out. And a lot of people asked, can you do over? Can you vote for someone else? No. So we're going to see a lot of votes for Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg tonight when they start tallying those votes. And one of the reasons it takes so long to count votes in California, I'll point out, it's one of the best states when it comes to democracy. They allow you to register to vote on the same day. There's 24-hour voting, which is a new thing in L.A. County. I know we had some long lines today and some problems here at USC, but it's actually a really great state when it comes to making it really expansive and open to everyone to participate, which is why so many millions of people do. Jeff, so far Biden's doing very well, and even in Massachusetts, he appears to be tied for the lead, which is stunning to me. Three weeks ago, the big story was uh, Buttigieg on the rise. Then... Contested convention inevitable. Seven days ago, Sanders has it wrapped up. 
Now it's maybe Biden has it wrapped up. This has been the most astonishing turnaround in the shortest space of time that I can remember in any contested primary. It is as if in South Carolina, some, some divine referee blew the whistle and said, game over, new game. And now the question is going to be, how does anybody stop Biden if there's anybody left to, to stop him? Two other quick points. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, who has spent half a billion dollars, has won two delegates in American Samoa. That comes out to $250 million per American Samoa's delegate. So if you want to be an American Samoa delegate next time, it looks like you will be very valuable to the next billionaire. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard won the other delegate from South American Samoa. She's in the next debate, which is going to make Joe Biden really happy. David? One of the cautions I had today about Joe Biden's prospects were that he's not near as well organized. He doesn't have as many staff offices. He doesn't have as many personnel on the ground as Bernie. And so if what we've seen early tonight comes to pass, and as Biden continues to show enormous strength, it indicates it's something that transcends old-fashioned grassroots politics, I mean, or on-the-ground grassroots politics. And that's important because I think Biden will still, for in the weeks ahead, it's difficult to scale up a campaign from near-death experience to a uh, front-runner campaign nationally. And so I think tonight's very important that Biden sort of show the strength that's going to make. Uh, I did hear him today say, for example, he was meeting a lot of really interesting people from the Buttigieg and the uh, Klobuchar campaigns, good staff field people. And so he'll be trying to coalesce all those and be something to keep an eye on. The only thing I would say, too, to watch tonight, I think it's important that Joe Biden demonstrate that he can do well beyond just the South. Bernie might have a, want to sort of marginalize him as a regional candidate in the talking points uh, tomorrow as people look at the, the results here. So I think very key that we see, for example, in Massachusetts, that a Biden could hold his weight there. Bernie? I uh, just came from teaching a three-hour graduate class, and I had a number of international students in the classroom. And they turned to me at the end of the class and said, what the hell is going on here? Um, and I think it's, it's useful maybe to keep in some perspective that in the last presidential election, it began with a lot of candidates, this was on the Republican side, remember, that changed the way that we thought about these primaries and the possibility of, of something happening really interesting. So here we are four years later, and there is clearly something, well not clearly, but something seems to be going on underlying democracies in the in the contemporary period where the number of candidates is much greater the dynamics between them is much greater and the ability of the press to predict what's going to happen is much smaller so as we move forward tonight let's keep a little bit in mind the sort of historical perspective of what this represents this evening i think that's really interesting on one of the big differences between the Republicans in 2016 and the Democrats in 2020, at least to this moment, is the Republicans could never get themselves together to come up with an alternative to Trump. And he managed to win the nomination, and until he had it secured, he was getting, what, David, 36, 37 percent of the vote. Bernie Sanders has probably a hard base of about 35 percent of the vote nationally, maybe 30 percent, but there were so many other candidates that he looked like he was very strong. 
Democrats suddenly, with the exception of Michael Bloomberg, although that may happen tomorrow, and Elizabeth Warren, who says she's going to stay in because she could be the best person to unite the party, the two, the Sanders and the non-Sanders faction, although I don't see how the party would ever nominate somebody who's coming in third, fourth, and fifth in all these primaries and caucuses. There does seem to have been a real consolidation in the party, and uh, to build on what Jeff said, a kind of tsunami in the last couple of days. I don't know whether it's going to reach California, but I know for sure, I'm certain, that Joe Biden's going to get a lot of delegates in California. And a week ago, people were saying he was going to get none. Does this kind of indicate that all this stuff about organization that you referred to is, is a bit of hooey? That it, organization is a little bit like, and I'm borrowing this analogy from David Axelrod, is a little bit like the field goal kicking team. It doesn't matter unless you get the ball down the field a certain way. And you've got to win the message war. Oh, this is Mr. Bill Carrick. So I'd like, I'd like you to comment on that, and then we'll, we'll bring Bill in to talk about what he sees. Well, it turns out organization is really significant uh, in, in Iowa, yeah. where people spend a year and a half in that benighted, wretched, anti-democratic, low turnout, I hope they abolish the caucuses tomorrow, state. Not so much in California and elsewhere. One of the things Bloomberg did with his money, apart from all the ads, was to buy an army of organizers. Hundreds upon hundreds of thousands in, in some states and opening offices where they'd never seen him before. So far, at least, uh, Virginia was one of his main targets. It doesn't seem to have worked. Bill, you want to weigh in on that and on what you see so far? Because you and I have talked about organization like in California many times. Uh, yeah, organization in California is an oxymoron. It's just, uh, you, can't, you can't organize the place. Hold your mic closer. You can't organize the place because it's too big and it's too vast. But it turns out, you know, it, it, in a lot of these states, the paid media advantage is a hugely uh, disproportionate. And some places, it's non-existent for the Biden campaign. So, you know, this is all organic. It's baked into the cake. And it's not, it's not about the campaigns. It's not about the Biden campaign. Now, it may be it's about the other campaigns and the, the choices they've made. But if this keeps up all night, it's going to be it's going to be a big night for Biden. Think a little bit about the both the optics and the timing. Buttigieg ends his campaign. He doesn't immediately endorse Biden, but gives a message that's sort of you know friendly to that idea of coming together as a party and certainly an anti-Bernie Sanders message. Then you have after Biden's victory in South Carolina, you have dozens upon dozens upon dozens of top officials, members of Congress, Harry Reid, people who are well-respected within the party start to come out and endorse him. And the campaign rolled them out in a very slow, very deliberate way where they had a headline every half an hour. And then they're able to get Klobuchar and her supporters. And then they're able to get Buttigieg to come out. They have two different events in Texas last night. Then they get Beto O'Rourke, right? All of those things like kind of compound against each other. And even this morning, I took my 16 students from my presidential campaign reporting class to the polls. And there were people who had just decided today to vote for Biden. You know, with this campus, we've done so many events in this very space where we try to see if there were any Sand any Biden supporters, and there never were. You know, maybe one or two, right? Now people are starting to pay more attention and think about it. But I've also had a lot of people talk about Warren and saying, look, like, 
if she's going to do anything, it's got to be tonight. And a lot of people did choose her. So I would not be surprised to see her perform actually well in California. Obviously, it doesn't look like she's performing all that well in other places. Bill, you want to wait? Uh, this, is, um, this may be uh, Hold a the contrarian view, but, you know, I don't know. But it's happening in the rest of the country. It's not going to be isolated at the California border. I think we're probably going to see Biden do pretty well here. And uh, so in terms of Warren, I think she spent a lot of time here. She obviously had her moment where she would look really pretty ascendant in California. But the national campaign has uh, caught up with her, and it's, it, it's a difficult situation to be in. But I, I, I'm not so sure we're going to see this, you know, somehow we get to the California line and it stops, particularly if these numbers that we hear in the exit polls about half the voters making up their mind in the last two days. That does not bode well for uh, Senator Sanders here. Let me just draw on your comparison of 2016 and this year. Yes, we had anti-establishment, anti-party establishment candidates leading early on. Both times the Republicans four years ago and, and uh, the Democrats this year. The difference is, when people go back and sort of look at this, is the establishment Democrats have sort of done what establishment people do. They fall in behind the remainders and endorse. What happened four years ago is no candidate in the Republican side seemed to command the respect of the peers that remained. And so... One after another, they began to drop out, but none of them were endorsing Trump, and they were not endorsing alternatives. They just said, I'm going to go my own way. And that's a huge difference in how these two, two different insurgent campaigns are playing out. No, th- that is a crucial point, because at the end of the Republican race in 2016, the alternative to Trump was Ted Cruz. Um, not the most appealing a- candidate About whom Lindsey Graham said... Republic, about whom Lindsey Graham said if Ted Cruz was killed on the floor of the Senate, you couldn't get a conviction because there'd be no witnesses for the prosecution. Everybody likes Joe Biden, even if they think he's a weak guy. Ernie? Yeah, I I would uh, sort of the role of party elders has struck me a little bit. And I just wonder if the, uh, the relative absence of our former president and leader of the Democratic Party says something of... Is that the nature of the man, which is, I suspect is what it is, rather than the nature of party politics? But I just find it striking that he was so obvious by not being present and what that says about this. Reason. You know, Reagan never endorsed Bush until he had secured the nomination. He did not endorse him early on in 88. I think probably that uh, Obama believes he can play a healing role later on, although I think the big challenge here, if Sanders does not win the nomination, is going to be how do you deal with his aggrieved supporters who had their hopes so high just a week or two ago and who may now have those hopes dashed. I mean, I remember in 1960, that's how old I am, going to the Democratic National Convention. The hall, the sports arena here was surrounded by Stevenson people. And they were hitting, like I got hit over the head going in because I had a Kennedy button on. And I was 16 years old, and they were saying, we'll never vote for this guy. We'll never vote for this guy. If they don't give it to Stevenson, we'll never vote for the guy. Guess what? They all voted for the guy. So it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. Well, and from a healing the party perspective, tonight's results, if Biden does win commandingly in a bunch of these states, which is 
you know, seeming like that's a possibility, at least we should caution there haven't been very many states called and that they're looking at, you know, few results here and there and basing off exit polls. But if he performs well, that's better for the party that he could have like a decisive gathering lots of delegates rather than some brokered convention or super delegates coming out at the last minute to pull the nomination away from Sanders if he doesn't have a majority. So in some ways, this could be the best result the party would hope for. And as for the former president, we've talked to a lot of different people that worked on his team and you know that he is truly conflicted, right? He knows a lot of the people. He's very familiar with these, but he doesn't, one, want it to backfire, um, which it could, um, and certainly could make it worse for the party, and then two, believes he can pay a bigger role at that convention. I have a question, if I might. How many of you voted for or would have if you'd made it to the polls for Sanders? Uh-huh. How many of you are willing to vote for Biden uh, in the fall against Donald Trump if he's the nominee? Did anybody in Thank here you. vote for Biden? When did you make up your mind? <laughs> so you're proving our points. I like that. Uh, how about Warren? Bloomberg. Yeah, anybody? Not a single Bloomberg vote. Uh, yeah, that, that, since you mentioned Bloomberg, he's going to win some other delegates tonight besides American Samoa. That's clear. What should he do tomorrow, assuming Biden does very well tonight, Sanders doesn't open up a big delegate lead? Isn't support just going to drain away from him despite the television advertising? Yeah, he... He has sort of suggested, I saw one interview, that, uh, well, going back to when he entered the race, he said he entered the race not because he wanted to, but he felt that no other candidate, and the implication was that Biden was making the progress that needed to be made. And so now that Biden's doing well, it does offer Bloomberg an excuse to, to sort of take a step back. And uh, if he does that, he needs to do it with great graciousness and enthusiasm in endorsing Biden. But you, it occurred to me that if Bloomberg had dropped out Sunday, if he'd gone to that same rally with Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar, he might well have been able to have delivered this state to Biden. And maybe the idea is, you know, but maybe that is, well, you know, if I spend half a billion dollars, I'd like to win a couple of delegates. But it's an odd, it's an odd strategic choice. If he's going to drop out in the next week, he could have actually effectively almost ended this campaign here. And he needed I guess proof. he huh? needed proof of concept, proof that Biden was going to be a winner. So maybe he'll endorse Biden at 2.30 this morning. <laughs> Bill? I think where we are is we're going to have to wait and see what the rest of these returns, what, that, what it all looks like. Tennessee looks relatively close. This is unbelievable. I mean, I, it's not a lot of the vote, but Biden is winning Massachusetts by a pretty big margin. We'll have to see what happens as more votes come in. It's amazing. And these Tennessee numbers do not include Nashville and Memphis, which I suspect will be overwhelmingly for Biden because of the size of the African-American community in both places. So, you know, we're, it, all, all this is going to have to play out all night. But so, it, 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 it's certainly a strong beginning for Biden. And I, I don't think Bloomberg can continue as a... Eight, nine, ten percent candidate. If that's what happens for the rest of the night, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna make threshold in a number of places, I think. But I want to want to ask one other question, and maybe we'll throw this open to the audience for a while because then we're gonna go at six o'clock and watch all these polls close. Nate Silver on five thirty eight dot com uh, earlier today. I haven't checked tonight, but earlier today had uh, had changed all his forecasts, and he had Biden 
going into the convention with about 1,738 delegates uh, of the 1,991 that were needed. He had uh, uh, Sanders going in with about 1,350. Sanders has said whoever goes in with a plurality deserves the nomination. You think he'll stick by that? Let me put it politely. Sanders's view of, of what is correct politically is transactional. Uh, four years ago, after a year denouncing the superdelegates, this is in 2016, with Hillary Clinton having won a three and a half million vote plurality and a huge share of the delegates, Bernie Sanders said, the superdelegates, or let me do it, the superdelegates have to come with me because I'm more likely to beat Trump than she is. So I don't know how Sanders comes up with an argument now if Biden has a plurality of delegates when up till a week ago he was saying anyone with a plurality of delegates should be the nominee. I don't, I don't, I don't know what that argument looks like. So what happens if you go in with short of a majority, but say Biden has 1,738 delegates? What's the outcome? Well, I, you know, we haven't had a, a, multi -can a multi ballot a nomination since 1952, which went four ballots. So I, I, I don't think we're going to have a multi-ballot convention. I think it'll get all worked out in the period between the end of the primary and the convention. It, it'll, it'll have some settlement. Uh, and maybe it'll be, you know, uh, typically platform issues get involved and rules changes and all kinds of things get negotiated between the campaigns and mostly come to a peace agreement, although Bob and I are in a campaign in 1980 that did not come to a peace agreement, and it did not have a happy ending. So uh, the caution... Well, our campaign kind of did. Our, our campaign kind of did, sort of. But, uh, it, but that, it, it, there, it, it is obvious what happens if you don't work out some settlement between the end of the primary season and the start of the convention. And, and just keep in mind, whatever that agreement is, let's say this is, you know, Biden offering Sanders some sort of olive branch, that is exactly what he campaigns against, right? The insiders, the horse trading, the backroom deals, the establishment. And he did get a lot of concessions out of 2016, right? Some of the changes with how we've seen these primaries run. Yeah, the reason um, Iowa was a mess was because... <laughs> They gave uh, Sanders what he wanted, which was a kind of early absentee voting. We're going to report three different vote totals. And the Iowa folks just weren't ready for this. And, you know, when you think about the, the Sanders messages that he's brought, bringing all these new people into the polls, people that want a revolution, I don't see them being like, oh, cool, like he's going to be the defense secretary or whatever. It just is Not a defense secretary. Right. <laughs> and, and so... I wonder what what could you possibly offer him to quell him because this is his last opportunity. It's not like he's going to be looking at twenty twenty four. David, you have any thoughts on this, and then we'll turn this. Well, on. what? How many votes did Elizabeth Warren? How many delegates did she have? Eight at the moment. No, but how many did she have on the projection that you were mentioning? Oh, she had like two hundred, I think. But yeah, somebody I mean, could check. Two hundred would but, go but a long Bloomberg had forward. the assumption was that Bloomberg stayed in, and he had like five hundred. Oh, okay. I, it just seems to me that the Elizabeth Warren voters would demand Bernie over Joe Biden. I just, I, I can't imagine that they're going to be happy to see as establishment of figures Joe Biden take it because she handed the votes over. 
Yeah, but the Bloomberg people, whoever's elected for Bloomberg, would if they weren't for Bloomberg, they'd be for Biden. For Biden, yeah. I was wanted to ask you, in the old days, we could talk like this. You get the defense secretary, you get the port of customs collector in Baltimore. It's been a few decades since that. So what could someone like Biden offer someone like Sanders, who's so alienated, he's not even a Democrat, what do you offer him? It's hard to imagine what you could offer him, because, and then you offer him, but will his followers follow him, over, in some ways, in their view, over the cliff? Um, and so he, he doesn't want to be secretary of cool stuff. Um, I think, you know, one, and this is psychological, my hunch is that he felt really dissed by Hillary and the core of the Democratic Party last time around. And so therefore, you know, my approach to him would be to try to show him the love that we really do respect him and cut some kind of deal that's, you know, less about what positions he's going to have for himself, but what's he going to do in terms of real policy enactment. And my concern is you cut a deal with, with Bernie but his followers may be so alienated that they say, we don't care. We'll just sit it out. They did that last – what was it? How much, what percent of Sanders voted, voted there are different, for Trump or Stein? Do there are know? different estimates. There's, there's an estimate that about 20 percent of the Sanders people did not vote for Hillary Clinton. They either stayed home or they voted third party. The vast majority of them were Kirshen says the vast majority of them were conservatives who never planned on voting Democratic anyway. We're going to find out. I mean, from a Biden perspective, if he emerges, the show of hands in here tonight was encouraging because it used to be that there were no Biden voters in this room. And we saw a lot of Sanders voters who said they would vote for Biden. Now, we have about 20 minutes before we get the next big dump. Anybody have any last thing to say before I turn it over to the students for a while? I have a question I've been dying to ask you. Um, I've had some of my students ask me this, and I feel like my um, history of covering elections just isn't as deep. But could either of these top candidates, Biden or Sanders, make a decision to either hint or even start vetting potential vice presidential candidates to close the deal, right? If you're Biden, you pick you know, a young woman, anything like that, or Sanders says, okay, I'm bringing Warren into the fold. In, in my view, the only people who do that are the people who are behind and are trying somehow or other to get through. So you had, in 1976, uh, you had Reagan suddenly pick a kind of semi-liberal, semi-moderate senator from Pennsylvania, Richard Schweiker, helping to pick up votes. And what it did was alienate the Mississippi delegation and send them over to Ford. I don't think this ever works, and it's seldom, it's seldom done. Well, there are a couple of possibilities, and I'll keep them short. One is the actual last multi-ballot convention was not 1952. It was 1956 when Adlai Stevenson said to the delegates, yeah. you pick the vice president. And they picked, uh, they defeated John Kennedy. I don't know whatever happened to him. It was a great uh, victory for him to lose that nomination. <laughs> and Bob's exactly right that this, this notion of trying to put together a team this early is crazy because you alienate. It's what Abe Lincoln said. If you give somebody a job, you have one, one ungrateful person and 15 resentful persons. The only thing that I'm, I'm prepared to predict now, and since I won't be here in the fall, you won't be able to find me to laugh at me, is if Joe Biden is the nominee, there will not be a white male as the vice presidential candidate. Who it is, I don't know. But I think I would go to the bank on that. Okay, do we, do we have some questions out here and someone have a mic for people? 
Hi, Paola San Miguel from uh, IYA, graduate student. One of the things that we keep forgetting in this election is that we are facing an existential problem. Like, this is not about Democrats. This is not about Republicans. This is about an administration that doesn't fundamentally believe in science and in facts and that they're mishandling a crisis to the point that people's lives are in danger. So I, how do you guys view the, the job of any de the Democratic candidate in terms of bringing people into the fold? Like there's a danger uh, from the Sanders bros situation in terms of people staying home. There's a danger of bringing together the party. But at the end of the day, if what's on the ballot is a cheese sandwich, like that's what we need to vote for because it's preferable to what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Just nominated a cheese sandwich for president in the Democratic Party because that would be better than Trump. Uh, myself, uh, it's the job of the nominee to somehow or other bring people together. And I suspect Barack Obama will try to play a very strong role in that. People will have hurt feelings. It will take a while to get over hurt feelings. If, if Sanders comes back and Biden loses, there will be a lot of hurt feelings on that side. If Biden keeps going and that Sanders loses, there will be a lot of hurt feelings. Hopefully, this will get decided soon enough that there will be some time for healing. You know, here are some things that I know about the general election. You know, one, incumbent presidents tend to win re-election, period. Since 1900, only three Republican presidents haven't, haven't. And that's just an important statistic to keep in mind in all of this. Also, the, the Trump base that, you know, allowed him to claim the presidency by winning the Electoral College but actually coming in, you know, people who were eligible to vote but didn't vote was the largest group of voters, you know, non-voters on Election Day. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote and Donald Trump actually came in third of those three groups. That's not going to happen this time around. Not only has he shored up his base, he has won new support and mostly because of what he has done to reshape the courts, right? Evangelical Christians who held their nose and voted for a third party candidate, that's not going to happen anymore. He's going to have all of that. So the candidate is going to need a huge turnout on the Democratic side if they want to overcome that. At the same time, I don't believe you are going to have anyone say, there's no difference between these candidates, you know, whatever, I'm not going to vote, I should just stay home. All of that that you heard about the Trump-Clinton race with people just so, like, grossed out and turned off, I don't believe people will say that anymore. I think people have been following the administration very closely and are going to feel very passionately for him or very passionately against him. Bill, do you think Trump's in a stronger position now than he was four years ago? No, I think that, you know, Trump is in terrible shape uh, by, I mean, I think they're going to run, a, you know, the same campaign. It'll be the scorched earth thing. It'll, you know, what we see is, what we've seen is what we're going to get. He's incredibly polarizing. And I, I, I think he's going to have a, he'll have a difficult time. I, 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 I agree, I agree about the, you know, incumbent presidents usually, when he's a quite an unusual incumbent president. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. And his the sustained level of his unpopularity, we've seen up and down with lots of presidents of both parties. This is mostly one thing. 
And I, I, I do think he, he's more polarizing. I also think if you are a progressive Bernie Sanders supporter, you better watch out and don't get blamed for him getting reelected too. I mean, if you're, if you, if you think, if you believe that there's going to every, everybody will kiss and make up afterwards if we lose this, and if there's a, a, a sense that the left set it out, that won't, that won't heal anytime soon. Uh, another question. Meddling. How much of a concern is that? Because we've been hearing it for years between, you know, so I'm just wondering if we're concerned about meddling and, you know, voter interference and all that good stuff. I have one brief thought about that, which is the midterms put Democrats in control of the state houses in a couple of key states. They kept Pennsylvania. They won Michigan. They won Wisconsin. They have Nevada. And it may be that... If the governor's party controls the election machinery, which it does in most states, it's going to be harder to it's going to be harder to meddle at least at that level. If you're talking about voter suppression in other states, I'm just not qualified to talk about that. Maybe well, they're closing tons of polls in Texas in heavily Latino and African American areas, hundreds of polling places. So that's going to happen. Bob, let me. Let, oh, me, go ahead, let me go, because I'm the only person who has a different point of view about the existential threat. That's the popular word used now. I'm just, as a Republican who didn't vote for Trump last time and won't vote for him this time, I am shocked as I talk to voters, and that's sort of my job as a pollster to talk to voters, as to how many people don't experience this existential threat. Those, we're on a college campus, and everyone's educated and I don't find it that, that that means that people are approving of Trump, is that unfortunately it is true that we're probably working harder as Americans than we've ever worked. More people with double jobs or just people are exhausted at the end of the day. And let me tell you, the first thing they do at home is not turn on CNN and follow the latest back and forth. Uh, I tried to tell my students the other day, you know, like on a good day, on a good day, a million people watch CNN. A good day. As someone reminded me, probably more people watch Yogi Bear reruns in America on the same day. And I'm not saying that to denigrate Americans, but I'm just telling you, if you think that people are sitting out there just waiting for the moment to pounce in November to vote against Donald Trump, I just don't think that's happened. Now, what's interesting is, you know, you're not seeing it here, but some of the parts of the country that I go, there's one, one ad in, in Alabama in the U.S. Senate race, one of the candidates that wants to bring in Doug Jones, is said his ad leads with the idea that God gave us Donald Trump. And I've been thinking lately a lot about, and God gave us the coronavirus. <laughs> and, you know, like, you can't have it kind of both ways. You've got to have it. And so I do think keep an eye on the economy. Donald Trump telegraphs you to every day, hey, I'm not that good, but check your 401K. And, I mean, he will at the end, if need be, he'll convince people. This is why he wanted Bernie, is because he could tell people that Bernie will cause your 401K account to collapse and you're going to retire in poverty. So if the economy doesn't pick up, and who knows where it will go. But I'm just saying if the economy does pick up where it was, don't overestimate the existential threat thing. Because I just it's it may not be broad enough, deep enough, wide enough to alone account for Donald Trump's defeat. 
Let, let me put the, uh, the R word in with the E word, the existential threat. Uh, this is probably not, certainly not going to shape the outcome of the election, but it may shape the way we think about the election, and that's meddling from Russia, you know, meddling internationally. Um, and I think you or one of the other uh, folks here said, well, how does one govern in a period like this one, after the election, uh, if a Democrat wins? Then one of the things we do have to address is the ability of our elections to reflect the will of the people at a time when so much is taking place internationally that also may play out in our own election. I, I, I agree about the international meddling. Now, the domestic meddling is another thing, and we had a little... A uh, test case of that in South Carolina, the Republicans announced with a lot of fanfare and noise that they were urging everybody to vote in the in an open primary situation to go vote for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. It it didn't happen. Five percent of the vote ended up being Republicans who voted in the Democratic primary. I come from a Republican town in South Carolina, Aiken, South Carolina. I know the precincts all there very well. I looked at all the Republican precincts. There was no Sanders vote in the. Republican Republican precincts. There was a few votes for Warren. There was Biden votes. You know, there was, you know, there were votes, but there wasn't, Sanders didn't do well in the real Republican precincts. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff is racket, too. They, you know, we can't get people to, we can't proactively get people to go vote, much less proactively get them not to vote. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's very difficult process voting. You know, there's people standing in line all over L.A. right now. I mean, it's a tough thing, to, a tough thing to manage when you're trying to get it proactively done, much less going through the whole of the gyrations you have to go to to discourage people from voting. But I'm not, I'm not speaking to the international problem, which is, you know, which is obviously cyber-driven to a large extent. Another question? Hi, um, I have two questions. The first question is related to polling specifically. I remember that when um, Trump uh, beat Clinton, it was, I remember waking up that day and feeling so good because everybody from Nate Silver to like uh, every pollster on CNN, even perhaps Fox News was saying that things were leaning towards Clinton. At the end of the day, things were completely different. So is there any explanation for that that you can give? Secondly, do you guys have any suggestions for a good website, let's say, where you can get more information than just these numbers? Obviously, there's error in these numbers. They're just statistics. I want to know more about how these numbers are generated. How can I do that? David is the pollster, but I do have to say something about Nate Silver, which is widely misunderstood. On election day, his probability was 75% for Clinton, and he was ridiculed by people like Nate Cohn of the New York Times and others who said, you coward, it's 100%, there's no way she can use, lose. The second thing is that Nate was writing that day, he said, I'm very uneasy about these numbers. I wasn't in 2012 when he became the algorithmic king. He said, I'm very uneasy about these numbers. Uh, he specifically pointed to the upper Midwest, as a potential weak spot. And what, what he keeps trying to explain to people, and this is the pro, but this is the, as a liberal arts major, I finally got it. 
if a football team is ahead by a field goal with five minutes left, there's a 75% chance they'll win the game. Would you be shocked if the other quarterback threw a touchdown pass and won the game? Of course you wouldn't. And people confuse probability with prediction. With that, this is the guy who actually knows stuff about this. Well, first off, let me say that actually if you do look at the last leading poll for that election, they were much closer than if you went back, say, 10 days. But the polls that were done the last three days reported were significantly better. But let me just tell you this. We had a session here a couple of weeks ago, and I sort of told this. When I started in this business, in the really in the 1980s, I could have a list of five voters, and I could call those voters, and I would get one of them to talk to me. So it was relatively easy to do polling. Uh, over time, the cooperation rate has collapsed to the point that there are some parts of the country I just recently finished a poll in L.A., and even 100 to 1 was not enough. Now, when you see margin of error quoted, the margin of error of this survey is plus or minus three points. Well, that's sort of a statistician's dream that we had a true random sample, a true random sample that of the original, let's say, 800 people I selected talked with me. But what I'm telling you is those people don't talk to me. Sometimes I have to call 99 other people. So what happens is increasingly pollsters have what we call, when I started this business, we called a convenience sample. It would be no better than standing in the shopping mall and as people walk down the concourse, you might say, hey, would you mind answering a few questions for me? Some people will walk on, some people won't. Uh, some people will talk to you. Uh, so this is a huge threat. And obviously, polling is an industry. It's like a business. So talking about this is sort of like talking about uh, E. coli at you know Chipotle. Uh, it's just something you don't like to talk about. But I, I would sort of say that in some regards... It's a miracle that as many of the polls were as close as they were. I just think that what you will see, and we've already seen this cycle, increasingly more challenges to polling. Uh, one of the key things to keep an eye on, it's not just the cooperation rate, it's also the predicting who will actually vote. 15, 20 years ago, we started getting better and better quality lists, and I could almost with 85% certainty tell you whether somebody's likely to vote based on whether they vote in the last election of the same time. So in California, if I had somebody, if I was talked to someone and the actual voter roll tells me they voted four years ago, I think 85% chance they'll vote this time. If they didn't vote, very low chance. What we've seen since Obama's first election, which caused this huge surge in turnout, is that Turnout just goes up and down. For example, the Obama voters came back in some states, and in other states they didn't come back. I mean, in sort of semi-liberal states, I in Colorado, it was just a total collapse of the, the Obama vote the second time. So predicting people, and, you know, we ask people questions, how likely you to vote, how much you've been paying attention to the campaign, how enthusiastic you feel, and all this, and I find that it, it's still not a satisfactory guide. So till they actually go and vote it's very difficult to, with the kind of precision you would like in reading as a consumer of polls, to be able to tell you what the outcome is likely to be. And, and I always just throw it back to you. You know, if you don't like that kind of, like, 
question. Everything everybody said is really accurate. Like Nate Silver, is he good for America? Like I could argue both ways, actually, if I were going to have a debate. You don't have to click on it. You can find raw sources of data. The data that they're showing on the screen is from election results that are being reported from their local precincts. You can get these, you know, the LA Times has a great interactive site, the New York Times, it's all powered by the Associated Press, which is getting the totals from the actual counties. But you could go to the counties themselves and look at the data. Um, But the main thing is, you know, use your own power and decide what kind of way you want to engage with political news because there are ways to just report on facts. We have one minute before we have turned on. I would say one other thing. The worst polls are the public polls, the ones that are done by media outlets. There's no question about that. This last 10 days, we've seen people reporting polls that were taken before Nevada, before South Carolina, reporting as if they were done the night before when they were done literally weeks before. Weeks before. Saturday Night Live reported on Weekend Update years ago that in a recent poll... 75% of the people said if the election were held today, they'd really be surprised. Uh, Keep that in mind. I would say a point of of privilege that I do not think that the uh, USC Dornsife LA Times poll suffers from some of the disabilities Bill is talking about. I don't think he thinks so either. Okay. The Associated Press has just called Colorado for Sanders um, based on those exit polls. But obviously CNN has not done that yet, but that is what you know some news outlets will use. And I'm sure I've had this question a lot. You guys may be wondering, how can they call a race for somebody when it says 0% of precincts reporting? Um, so there are a couple different things. The majority of that would be relying on exit polls where they ask questions. That's what they're talking about. You're seeing a lot of this data. Um, you know, what was the issue that drove you to the polls? Who did you vote for? That type of thing. Caucuses are basically impossible to do exit polls, which is why we haven't seen a lot of this yet. Um, you did see it in South Carolina. You saw some in, in New Hampshire. So they spent a lot of money to basically put people outside of polling locations strategically across each of these states to be able to say, like, what were these issues? When did you make up your mind? All of the questions you're seeing them ask. And the networks all buy into that. It's very expensive. Usually some newspapers will buy in as well, like the Post and the New York Times and probably the Wall Street Journal. We haven't talked much about this. What does Elizabeth Warren do after tomorrow? if she loses her own state of Massachusetts? Does she keep going, saying, I'm the unity candidate? Jeff? Uh, The reason I am maintaining silence is that the real answer is I haven't a clue. And I think more to the point, I'm not sure her campaign has a clue. The argument that that she... You made this point, Bob. The argument that you can be the unifying force when you finished fourth or fifth in every state and haven't won your own is is difficult at, at... at best. But the question is, who does she, what does she do? In terms of her stand, she's obviously far closer to Warren than Biden. She and Biden have a personal animosity that dates back to a fight about a bankruptcy bill where she thought Biden was selling out to the banks and Biden thought she was being irresponsible. But if you're Elizabeth Warren right now, the only logical thing you could do would be to throw your support to Sanders. But But that's almost like jumping aboard a sinking ship if these numbers look right. So I don't have any particular, I don't have any particular insight except it's a, she seems to me to be in a no-win position. You know, she's low on resources. Um, She does not have a lot of money. And, you know, there's a point where you don't win any states tonight. You can't justify it. It's a math equation. 
there's no way you have a clear path. So do you just suspend your campaign and quietly step aside? Maybe you don't endorse somebody. I mean, we were talking about endorsements a few minutes ago. We didn't hear anything from Kamala Harris. We didn't hear anything from Cory Booker. They made a lot of those decisions. So if I'm her, I'm done after this. If I, you don't win one state. If you win one state, maybe you can justify that. How many of you know what she said tonight in her event on Super Tuesday? I already know the answer is zero because they didn't show it on TV. I watched it on a live stream at my desk before I came down here. Um, and she didn't get any coverage in the night we were down here. Was that New Hampshire we were doing the watch party? Either. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Like if you don't get the media coverage, the conversation is going to be about Biden doing so well. There's just no path for momentum anywhere. Let me just comment on the, the exit poll uh, showing Colorado uh, going... Or AP called it, but that means they're basing that on an exit poll. That is truly phenomenal, and I think it 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 reflects something that's that's extraordinary about Colorado right now. But we're starting to see in other states. Colorado is very much an early voting state. I probably do more voting there than I mean more polling research there than any other state in the country. And uh, uh, I was there last Friday, in fact, and everybody held their I voted sign. This, is, of course, certain events have happened since then, since the South Carolina primary that changed things. I don't know the exact number, but it has totally changed the complexion of how you campaign. You, you can't, you don't, you don't start from election day and start your planning back. You have to start the day the ballots are mailed out, which is a month in advance. And, and so uh, I have no doubt. If you look at Colorado, you think about who are the top ten, you know, players in the Democratic Party. Well, none of them are progressive leaders. I mean, I was sitting here thinking, well, who is the progressive leader that would have been helping Bernie organize? There's not many. I mean, there's some think tanks that are more sort of the progressive feel on the issue side. But in terms of elected officials, Hickenlooper, Bennett, so forth, two candidates already in this race. It's interesting. Colorado is the state that in 1992 voted for Jerry Brown over Bill Clinton. There's a kind of maverick streak in the state that I think we've seen in presidential politics especially. The other thing that I would say is that when you look at these numbers and somebody calls a state, that's not what's critical. Because if somebody gets 29%, somebody gets 23%, somebody gets 17%, and then nobody else comes above 15%, those three people split the delegates. 29% gets a few more delegates, but 24% gets almost as many delegates. Thank you, Bob. I cannot tell you, as somebody who spent a lot of years on that end of the camera, how often I wanted to throw Wolf Witzer to the ground and say, will you stop obsessing about who has won? There, you know, in the last three uh, caucuses in Iowa, the winner and loser were literally a percentage point or less apart. It didn't matter. They split the delegates. It's not an election. In November, you can win a state by 537 votes out of 6 million, and you are the president. That's not what happens, and it particularly doesn't happen in the Democratic Party because Republicans still have winner-take-all primaries in a lot of states. So this, the Sanders folks who cheered when you heard that he had won Colorado, you're entitled to cheer, but you have no idea whether he's got five delegates more than Biden or ten or three. Or three. And, and when you look at these numbers in the third place, right, there, I was just looking one of the ones for Warren. You know, she's 13.9%. That's not enough to get any delegates. 
right? And that's Bloomberg that is probably crowding her out more than anything else. Um, he's, you know, looking at like 14% in a lot of these. So he's not going to get any delegates either in some of these states, but preventing others from doing so. Okay, let's go back to the audience for questions, because this really is for you guys. The AP has now just called Oklahoma for Biden. Oh, and they called Tennessee? No, Tennessee was a state that was very much in doubt, because Biden had absolutely no investment there, no organization there, no media there. It's all organic, as someone said earlier. It's a kind of political tsunami which I have not seen the like of in all the years I've been involved in presidential politics. So you just mentioned that um, these other candidates like Bloomberg can, can steal from, uh, oh my God. from the total. So you mentioned that Bloomberg can steal from the total of, uh, of delegates from maybe the top contenders, but what about uh, candidates like Buttigieg, who right now has 8% in uh, Tennessee, and uh, some of these candidates who did not are not even uh, supposed to be are not in the running anymore. What does that factor into to the totals? Well, the ballots get printed, and some people decide they want to vote for somebody even though they've withdrawn, or they vote early and they can't get their ballots back. In Michigan, actually, if you vote early by post and you want your ballot back, you can get your ballot back up until, I think, a day or two before Election Day. In California, it would theoretically be possible if you voted by mail, not voted early at the precinct, but voted by mail to do that, but it would complicate a system that is already so overcomplicated that we don't know what to do with it. Did any of you vote early? Could I ask a question? Would any of you have voted differently if you had held on to your ballots till today? Very interesting. Okay. Just ask it. But I'm going to go back to Colorado. I would say many Coloradans would have voted for Joe Biden if they knew he was as viable as they found out today. Yeah, I also think that to your question about what happens if somebody votes for Buttigieg, they recal- he, he falls under the threshold, so they recalculate the delegates based on the ones that get over 15%. His so 8% so doesn't matter except that it might have gone to somebody else. else. Yeah. Huh. And that Trump is particularly skilled at finding the weaknesses of his opponents, especially the external weaknesses, and looking beyond the primaries and the convention, perhaps one of the points or weakness that Biden would have if he were to be the nominee on the debate stage with Trump is oftentimes he fails to really complete sentences or this is just, I mean, in witnessing his performance in the Democratic debates where he's only had, you know, a small portion of speaking time when he'd be having 50% of the speaking time on a debate stage, how do you think that he would be able to perform? And beyond that, how do you think he'd be able to go up against Trump weaponizing that very obvious weakness that he has? Well, anyway, I have views on this, but anyone want to take it? I mean, he'll have to really practice, right, if that's him. The 08 debate between Joe Biden and Sarah Palin was he he lucked out in some ways. You know, a lot of people looked at her as she commanded so much of the attention because she was new and, you know, she did the wink and the can I call you Joe thing and all that. But, um, you know, he's clearly was was more qualified than her on all the issues, but he did not perform that well. And he did do really well against Paul Ryan, um, I thought. Not everybody agrees with me on that um, in 2012. But, you know, th- that's not one of his strengths. 
it's going to be a challenge. And Trump will try to piss him off, too, which is another thing, is he is a little short-tempered sometimes. If you look at Biden's speech in South Carolina, which I thought was maybe his best delivered speech of the, of the whole campaign, he's hitting the theme about decency. Now, a lot of people think Hillary Clinton made a terrible mistake in constantly going after Trump's character, those ads with the school children listening to his rants. One of the possibilities, uh, which has been suggested to me by people on both sides of the aisle, is after four years of daily Trump in your head, the argument of a return to quiet, normal decency may work if Biden has the discipline to make that argument and then not go off on the 20-minute diversion into what happened with Strom Thurmond in, at the cloakroom in 1959 or whatever. In 1959, Joe would have been 19 years old, probably not in the cloakroom. But uh, I'm the dissenter here. I think Biden has found it very difficult to debate all these Democrats. It's a whole different kettle of fish to debate Donald Trump. You have stark differences. You know what you want to say. You know how you're going to debate. And I suspect, and I know the people who are going to help prepare him, like Ron Klain, he will go in and he will prepare and prepare and prepare. And I think it's absolutely right that in 2012, after Barack Obama fell on his head in the first debate, presidential debate, Joe Biden brought things back in that vice presidential debate. Now, it's eight years later, but I don't buy this stuff that he's lost a step. Joe Biden has always been like this. I mean, this is not a new Biden. I mean, he called me once and I think it was 1986 and said, I need to talk to you about a, a problem. And I went up there and I sat for two hours. He, we never talked about a problem. And I just listened to a monologue for two hours. And then he had to go vote in the Senate floor. That didn't mean he wasn't a good senator. And it certainly didn't mean he wasn't a good vice president. It doesn't mean he wouldn't be a good president. The other thing I will say is... I agree with Jeff, and that if Trump tries that kind of stuff with Biden, they're going to prepare Biden for it, and I think the country's kind of tired of it. It occurred to me the other day that when the coronavirus hit, that Trump could have had a redefining moment. He could have gone out there with the medical professionals and said, look, I'm not going to answer the medical questions. We have medical professionals to do that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm president of all Americans, and I am going to the Oval Office I am not going to be conducting campaign events in the next several months. I am going to work on curing or on stopping the coronavirus from killing Americans. People would have thought completely different, differently about him. It's what Jimmy Carter did during the hostage crisis. And it saved, his, it saved his primary campaign. Got doomed in the general, but it saved his primary campaign. Trump is incapable, I think, even if somebody in the White House thought about that option, of exercising it. He just can't do it. Instead, he gets up there. I don't know if you saw him today. He said, we're going to have a vaccine in a matter of months or even weeks. And, and then Anthony Fauci says, well, actually, you know, we might have something to try, but it has to go into trial and we really won't have a large supply of viable vaccines. Jeff told me about this for a year and a half. So Trump can't do that. Yeah, I was wondering what you all think, other than the kind of cascade of an establishment endorsements caused this Biden resurgence that I certainly didn't see coming. I don't think they caused it. I think they reflected it. Okay, then what did cause it? Well, let me just say, like in South Carolina, I'd done some focus groups over there and before, and uh, there was not a lot of enthusiasm for Joe in terms of a voting enthusiasm. 
And we probed a little about that, and people said, oh, I like Joe, but he's the past. He doesn't seem to have a specific issue agenda. All these other people are full of ideas. So they were excited about those, not about any one particular of those. They wanted to sort through all the issues and so forth. I think what happened was, when it sort of came down, push came to shove, they went with familiarity and comfort. And I think there were some very important endorsements at the very end, both in the churches, the black churches, and also in the, the electeds, elected officials. They made a difference. But I think in the end, he was comfortable. He didn't inspire them initially, but in the end, there was no one better. So he benefited to some extent from the, the failure of any other candidate to really launch. Well, I, I think one thing that happened in South Carolina, which is uh, uh, just a uh, consequence of the Republican uh, redistricting there, the, the Republican redistricting in South Carolina created a congressional district, namely Jim Clyburn's congressional district, that includes African-American communities in Charleston, African-American communities 120 miles away in Columbia, 75 miles away going towards Florence uh, on your way to Myrtle Beach. And uh, he became a statewide congressman because he was in the three of the four top media markets. So the Democrats, not only the African-American Democrats, but the white Democrats, Jim Clyburn was their guy. And the 49% that said that it was influential, which is an unusually high number, the Republicans created Jim Clyburn they, because of the way they redistricted his congressional district. You raised the, the point that I tried to allude to earlier. It's the mystification of this. Generally speaking, endorsements no. don't mean much. Clyburn's meant something, but Teddy Kennedy's of Obama meant okay. a lot. But, I but mean, most don't. What I mean in this particular case, the first of all, the nature of Biden's win in South Carolina, which was greater than anybody had predicted, followed instantly by the withdrawal and endorsement of two reasonably significant players, right? That's the kind of triggering mechanism in which the base of the Democratic Party, moder more moderate, said, oh, yeah, him, because there's nobody else. That and the fact that Bloomberg, after half a billion dollars, walked out on the debate stage and hit himself in the face with a pie. But also keep in mind, Joe Biden was the frontrunner and was the frontrunner for a very, very, very long time. Best known person in the race, um, you know, dominated for a long time. His debate performances weren't great. Then he had three states where he didn't do great. And people wanted to see him actually prove that he could do what all the polls had suggested, that he was the most electable against Donald Trump, Right. And one statistic that, you know, I knew, but when reading it in the New York Times Saturday night, it was just so, like, his victory in South Carolina was his first ever primary victory in all three of his presidential bids and everything else he's done over the course of his career. And people wanted to see him win. And the win made him feel good. So then you see he has new energy. And then, you know, he seems like a winner. And then you have people that you respect suddenly endorsing him. And it gives you this sense of momentum and sweep. And now he's won a whole bunch of states. So it does kind of restore what that initial suggestion about him was in all the data seven months ago. Hi. I would like to challenge a little bit why we're saying that Joe Biden, why Joe Biden has got this big resurgence. And I'd like to say, so Joe Biden is the only candidate who's proposing to increase the military budget. And do, that's a very kind of conservative more thing that uh, is like that. So 
maybe that's at things like that and he's appealing to a lot of the southern state he won north carolina south carolina alabama tennessee virginia those are sorry not south carolina I, I, north carolina so do you think that be, he's winning in the in more in the redder states because he's more of a central i, I think candidate. that is a complete misreading of the Democratic Party and Democratic primaries. The fact of the matter is you have heavily African-American constituencies in these states. You have a lot of Democrats who stayed in the party. White Democrats who stayed in the party tend to be liberal. I do not believe Joe Biden has proposed a larger military budget than Donald Trump. And I don't think that's an issue in this campaign right now. I think his resurgence came about for the reasons people described here, which is they looked around in South Carolina. They said, who else is there? Pete Buttigieg didn't make a connection with people of color. Bernie Sanders, for all the effort he made, only went up three points among blacks from 14 to 17 between in, in, in the space of four years. And I think it's extraordinarily unfair to those brave Democrats in the red states, many of them people of color, to suggest that somehow or other they are either benighted or right wing. It's not true. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture, Facebook, and YouTube. And visit our website for upcoming programs. Music.